Okay, let's go on to your case, Dr. Deutsch. This is an 81-year-old Hispanic woman who had a prior diagnosis of a right breast cancer in November of 2005. At the time, she was living in Venezuela, and she brought me the PATH report written in Spanish. And so after interpretation, she had a tumor size 1.1 centimeter, infiltrating ductal carcinoma grade 1. She had axillary lymph node dissection, eight nodes negative, ERPR positive, HER2 new, one plus positive, no fish, and she had been placed on Famara in Venezuela. She came to see me in August of 2006, so nine months later. She stated she was tolerating the Famara, but she had her husband with her who told me she really wasn't taking the Famara like she was supposed to be taking it. <laughs> so Was she having symptoms? No, she wasn't having symptoms. She just sort of didn't want to take it. So every so often she'd take her Famara. And at that point, she was lost to follow-up for 18 months and came back to see me in May of 2008. And at that time, she had completely stopped her from our therapy. She said she was doing well and did not have any symptoms of metastatic disease. However, she was overdue for her mammograms, so I ordered bilateral mammograms, and she finally had those done in June of 2008. And they're in the right breast, in the upper outer quadrant, where her prior cancer had been was and asymmetric density. Did she get radiation? No. She refused. So there were two lesions on the mammogram, one more medial, one more lateral. She underwent breast MRI, and that showed the lateral lesion to be enhancing, the medial lesion to be non-enhancing, and the size was reported to be 0.5 centimeters. She underwent mammatome biopsy of both the medial and lateral lesions. The medial lesion was fibrosis and felt to be related to her prior surgery. Scarring the lateral lesion was an adenocarcinoma of the breast. Again, invasive ductal, nuclear grade 3, 0.5 centimeters. ER positive, PR weakly positive, HER2 new negative. She was recommended to have a mastectomy because of recurrent disease. She said no, <laughs> had a lumpectomy and there was no other carcinoma in the lumpectomy specimen. She couldn't have lymph node dissection because she had already had one, and she again declined radiation therapy. Can you talk a little bit more about the feel you got for her as a person? I mean, she's refusing surgery, she's refusing radiation therapy and endocrine therapy. What do you think was going on in her head? Well, I think she just sort of has this idea that I'm, you know, 81 years old and I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, and she didn't want to lose her breast. And she said, you know, at 81, why should I put myself through this? Because I don't want to. And she was willing to take the risk of having more cancer in that breast rather than lose her breast. And so where is she right now? So she's had her lumpectomy. And we again talked at length about radiation therapy and the reason to get radiation therapy. But she says, no, I'm not just not going to do that for some reason. Whatever she read, there was something about the radiation that she thought was going to be very toxic to her, and she just is adamant about not having radiation therapy. So then we got around to talking about treatment, you know, and we discussed, well, is this a new primary lesion, or is this a recurrence of her other breast cancer? She was previously on Famara, but it was clear she wasn't compliant with it. And so I talked to her about taking Fazildex because it would ensure compliance which was one of my major issues with her. That way I know she'd be compliant with her hormone therapy. But she didn't like the idea of a shot once a month, and she said, I think I'll take my Famara. <laughs> so I put her back on Famara, and she's on that and doing reasonably well. How long has she been on it now? She has been on it for about six months or so, 
Now, in the meantime, she did tell me she wanted an archetype done. She <laughs> asked for an archetype. Uh, she told one, I would me. not get one. Yeah. Told me, yeah. But told me she really didn't want chemotherapy. <laughs> so we she did the archetype, and of course, she was intermediate risk. Right. But said, that's okay, because I didn't really want chemotherapy anyway. So... So, Sandy, this is kind of like the real world as opposed to... Uh, <laughs> I like put. our patients that I see where I am now. Any Very thoughts similar. about, you know, dealing with these kinds of patients, Sandy, and also in terms of what's going on here, Dr. Deutsch's question about is this a local recurrence or a new primary? Well, you said the, the lateral lesion. Is it far removed from where the original primary was? Well, it's hard to tell because I don't have an op report. You know, it was all to do just to get the basic stuff out of the PATH report. So I believe it's in the same vicinity, but the first lesion, I think, was more medial than this one. So I could not be sure that this was a recurrence of her first cancer, although it's feasible given that she didn't have radiation. Well, and it's sometimes even hard when you know exactly where it is. And I think if you look back at some of the real old studies where they took sections of the whole breast, you see around the original primary, depending on how many centimeters you go out, that you have lots of disease, even though you've removed that one nodule. So to me, it seems most likely that it would be related to our original. I mean, the reason we give radiation is to try to, you know, kill the rest of the cells that are in there in the multifocal area. So I would say it's probably most likely progression of her original lesion. Gary? I had a question about doing a mastectomy after failure for a lumpectomy, usually with radiation. And I believe there are some people that will proceed with a second lumpectomy and not necessarily salvage mastectomy. Is that correct? There are. There are some studies. I can't quote you the data right now, but I think the standard treatment would be a mastectomy. But there are data suggesting that you can do a lumpectomy if you do a wide excision. Alan? So we're talking as if this patient is totally irrational. However, I heard a presentation recently from someone from the Mass General talking about what the absolute benefit is from post-lumpectomy radiation in an 81-year-old. No negative. That's Kevin Hughes' data. It's yes, a randomized CLGB right, trial. The, yes, right. right. And the benefit is actually quite small. And so a rational person could easily choose not to have with, radiation. With one caveat, that trial was a CLGB trial where they all got tamoxifen. And so this patient has opted out of both the systemic therapy and the local therapy. Right, so I don't think it applies. But the tamoxifen benefit is also quite small. But their control arm was on tamoxifen. So what they were describing there was a very modest impact in local recurrence and a non-measurable impact on survival. That's what we described in that result. And that's the point. When you get old, there's competing causes of mortality. And in a sense, that's what you're describing here. So this woman says, I'm 81, I can do what I want, which is to say I'm going to die of something, not this breast cancer. That's true, but going through repetitive surgery that could have been avoided is unfortunate, and nobody with a second primary was included in that trial. We would all have pushed her for radiation the second time. When you said she didn't have it the first time, I was thinking about what Alan's quoting, which is a CLGB data, which which No, she was that. offered it. She refused it the first time. Right, but time. it's fair not to give radiation in a node-negative, low-risk patient on hormone therapy in this age group after lumpectomy for the first cancer, but I don't think it's fair after the second one. She's declared herself to be a bad actress. Carrie? Do you think there's anything to do with cost of the drug here? Tamoxifen now, I understand, generic is $10 a month. And if cost has any possible influence on her judgment, maybe tamoxifen would be a better drug for her. We talked about tamoxifen, but she didn't like the side effects of tamoxifen. And she was wedded to the idea of taking Famara again. And, you know, I, 
like I said, I thought Fazildex would be great because I knew she would be getting her <laughs> hormone therapy, but <laughs> she wouldn't go for that either. And I think, I guess that brings up the question of if she would have agreed to another agent, I'm not sure I would have chosen Famara because she had been on that, but only on it intermittently. So, you know, it kind of brings up what hormone should we put her on if she would have agreed to go on what we recommended. How do you feel about taking care of her? You're discussing her in a pretty calm way, but is it frustrating? No, because I really think that when you deal with patients, you are the person who gives them information, but they are the agents of their health care, and they're the agents of their choices. And as long as you present the data and you present the risks and benefits, they choose what they want to choose because that's what they're allowed to do, and you do what they choose to do. So there's frustration in that you have the sense that maybe they're not making a good choice, but at the end of the day, they're the ones who get to make the choice, not us. We're just the agent of information. What about her family? What did they have to say about all of this? Oh, her husband, while he'll rat her out about her Famara, he is not going to push her to do something she doesn't want to do. Sandy, what's your take on the issue of adherence to hormonal therapy? We've seen data, both with tamoxifen and AIs, that claims that a lot of patients don't take their medicine. Do you think that's a reality? I think it is absolutely a reality. If anyone here has ever had to take medication regularly, even an antibiotic for seven to 10 days, know that it's easy to stop taking it. So the data does show that there's a lot of noncompliance. I've got to ask you too about the Lancet Oncology paper. Sandy, can you comment on what Jack Cusick reported and what you think about it? He looked at the ATAC data or the patients on the ATAC trial and found that those patients who had, or he actually excluded any patients who had arthritis at the beginning, and found that those patients who had arthritis and hot flashes actually had a better outcome when they got these side effects with the aromatase inhibitor. It was, it was more, ATAC, right? Right, it was ATAC. So it would be anastrozole. Or tamoxifen. Right, no tamoxifen. Right. So the patients who had the side effects, but he combined them together, arthralgias and hot flashes, had a better outcome. And I think one of the issues I had with the paper and the reason we had discussion about it is retrospective. I didn't see anywhere in the paper that they defined that they were going to look at arthralgias and hot flashes in a very systematic way, which is not easy. I mean, we all see these patients, you know, you may not ask them that visit if they have hot flashes or not. Everyone, I think, in my opinion, over... 50 or postmenopausal, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, has some arthralgias and their incidence was only 9% in that paper. And Steve Jones was talking about in the IES trial about, I think, 60% or, or some really high number at baseline had arthralgias. So I think there's a problem with data ascertainment there. What do you think, Cliff, about this concept, though? In a way, it kind of reminds me of looking at rash with EGFR inhibitors and lung cancer and colon cancer. Kathy Miller was talking about the SNPs and hypertension with bevacizumab. This is, I guess, on target or toxicity. I'm not sure how you... Yeah, I don't know what to make of this because we're actually conflating, I think, two distinct areas of science. In the area of tamoxifen, there's some data that says that hot flash incidence is linked to better outcome, and there's a rationale, which is that the CYP2D6 activity converts, of course, tamoxifen into the 4-hydroxy and endoxifen, and that those active drugs actually are, A, the treatment for breast cancer, and B, the direct cause of the hot flashes. So we've been able to counsel patients based on the wheel study and a few other smaller experiences that having hot flashes may really be good. It's not clear to me on the AI side why that would necessarily be the same thing. And the mechanism of action for the hot flash causation may well be different for these different drugs. And by the way, I share Sandy's questions about over-interpreting that data. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I certainly can understand. I actually interviewed Jack Cusick and San Antonio in depth about this. And, you know, he is the first one to say, we love to see this kind of analysis done on, a, you know, other trials on a prospective basis. But just if it does evolve, to me, it seemed like it would really affect the patient counseling process. So that if you had a woman who had, let's say, low-grade arthralgias that weren't terrible, you might be able to say, hey, you know, maybe this is a sign that the drug's actually going to work better. Maybe so, but just to expand on what Sandy said and why really the methods and the procedures in the trial matter, I always think back to the early days of the Abraxane development. And when they were trying to figure out the neuropathy and they were planning for the trials, a whole series of identical control arms were looked at for paclitaxel 175Q3 over three hours. And the reported range of grade two neuropathy was as low as three or 4% and as high as 20-something percent using the exact same regimen in metastatic breast cancer. The point being that ascertainment varies massively across these trials. And we all acknowledge it and then shrug our shoulders and move on and look at the data. But the truth is it may dwarf anything that you think you're seeing in the data. And so I'm just, again, underscoring Sandy's point, and I couldn't agree more strongly. I don't think we know anything about it until we measure it with a tool that's validated, do it in a prospective fashion, and don't diminish how hard this will be. People are working on it, but you virtually need a daily electronic record of hot flashes in order to actually start to look at this in a prospective and accurate way. Mark? The other thing I was thinking about with regard to my wife's experience with the AIs, basically is that the term arthralgia is thrown around a lot, but really what I've noticed is really more of a sort of an early morning gelling phenomena, sort of along the lines of RA. And the other thing I've noticed is there is this pedal syndrome. It sounds like a compressive neuropathy, essentially, where the only thing that relieves them is to get off their feet. And I had a patient the other day who starts telling me the same story, and it was interesting because she reminisced something I didn't understand. My wife would always... We'd be taking these long showers in the morning to the point that the hot water was gone. So there was nothing left for me. And this patient, you know, basically offered up the point that hot showers actually help a lot of these symptoms. So I, so I asked her subsequently, I said, I said, are you doing this just because you like taking long hot showers or is this actually helping some of your symptoms? And the answer was that it's helping some of the symptoms. But the foot problem, this feeling that they just can't be on their feet is an impossible problem to deal with because there's no solution. Orthotics, whatever, nothing really works except getting off their feet. I wish there were more information on these complementary strategies like, you know, hot showers or massage or stretching or yoga or, you know, simple things that, I don't know, have they been studied at all in, for example, the arthralgias with AIs? I don't think prospectively. No, they've hot flashes. They've looked at acupuncture, mm. and there's some studies recently, one in JCO that showed that it was effective. But so many, that would be either acupressure or acupuncture. Many patients will definitely tell you if I stay active, my arthralgias are much better than if I'm a couch potato. And you know, I preach that all the time, but you hear it come back from your patient all the time. Oh, I know that. You know, when I'm doing my regular exercise, it's just a lot less of a problem. Hmm. Well, don't you think that's true anyway? And as people get older, that happens. So I'm not, I think we're more aware of it. So I'm wondering how much of it is really the drug itself. I know the drug does do some of it, but are we just paying more attention to it? I mean, there's no question that this is a very common problem with aging. You know, it's just very hard to separate it out. You know, I think about all the 
years, we tried to tease out about tamoxifen and weight gain, and it's just very hard to separate out some of these things. Alan? We're part of a randomized trial out of the MD Anderson CCOP research base of mindfulness relaxation to prevent chemotherapy-induced nausea. So these studies are actually going on. 